Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. So glad you tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Paula Boddington about artificial intelligence. And this is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be back again. Uh, So could you tell us how we gain moral knowledge? Well, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I, w- I wish I could give you a sort of a full answer to that, because because one of a yeah, one of a big it's actually one of the questions of philosophy that I've been interested in, uh, you know, all my career. I can remember. I can remember a undergraduate essay I wrote on this. It's su- such a difficult question about how we understand what moral knowledge is. It's a background question to the sorts of questions in the ethics of AI that I've been working on. And it's one of the questions actually that also comes to the fore about AI, because there's a question that people have asked about whether or not artificial intelligence can, you know, answer ethical questions for us or help to guide us in certain ways. So, I mean, moral knowledge, I think what I can what I can say, what I'll say about this is in also in relation to the questions that come up around artificial intelligence and our use of technology, because I think that there's certain things we can do to help to increase help help to help to increase our capacity to have moral knowledge and moral understanding and a lot a lot of those are i think a lot of those actually are around how we pay close attention to the world around us and to other people a lot of those also actually so a lot of it is relational a lot of it is relational about how we pay attention to to a, to a lot of other people and in fact i mean a lot of people working in feminist ethics have pointed that out i've also been re- also really impressed by the works of Simone Weil, who talked a lot about attention, attention to the individual other person. Also convinced we were talking in part one about intelligence, the nature of intelligence and the, the importance of embodiment for intelligence, the fact that we are in the world. I think that embodiment is also an important part of moral knowledge as well. Now, I haven't got a complete theory for this. I haven't got a complete theory for this, but it's something that I just feel really, really strongly, that the ways in which we live in an embodied world and our own our own particular bodies, for example, we get we get feedback and information about moral issues from how we feel ourselves, from how we feel that, that, that you know the sympathy or the disgust that we might feel towards certain situations. I mean, sometimes also you just simply know what the right thing to do is. You know, sometimes in an emergency situation, you you know what the right thing to, the right thing to do is. You don't need to kind of you, you don't need to kind of work out cognitively if you like using using our minds. You can go on instinct with that sort of thing. Yeah, well, yes, I'm not quite sure. See, when you talk about instinct, I think that, that there is obviously instinct. There is instinct built into us. So it's an instinct of human beings to protect, like, tiny human beings. But, I mean, they're evolved. Babies and small kids are evolved to be cute, aren't they? That's their main, their main aim in life, to be as cute as possible. 
so that you so that you look after them because they're so helpless. So there is instinct, but I also think a lot of it is gained through gained through experience and gained through ha- habitual interaction with other people. So, but I don't think that it's just if you say that it's instinct, then there's an issue that it might be kind of downgraded to mere instinct, in in the same sort of way as 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 a, I mean, like a fox wants all our chickens. It only needed one, but they'll just kill the whole lot. You say, "Oh, that's instinct." So, so, so there's a, there's a, there's a question there's a question around that. But I think it's more that we have, but I, but I but I think it's about how we actually perceive other people as people. That's that's more than instinct. It's how we relate to other human beings. We're getting huge amount of information from, from other human beings all the time, but we also need the space and and the care and the conditions in which to do that. Um, I've often had at the back of my mind that I would like to be able to sort of work on work on looking at what counts as the conditions of kindness, the conditions under which we are able to do that, um, to, to bringing to, to bringing those those aspects of attention, focus of attention, and to, to the reality of the world around us, um, the conditions which enable us to to do that, for ways in which we perceive we can perceive the situation around us, not necessarily just literally with our eyes. But with with ways in which we have developed a fine tuned appreciation, which goes beyond instinct, in the same sort of way as a as, as somebody who's been you know studying the violin and playing the violin for five hours a day for twenty years, will just be able to sort of pick up and play it. That's the kind of thing I think that comes from moral knowledge over and above, over and above an instinct. I also, but I also, th- but I also think that we need to do that in conjunction with other people and with uh, um, the wisdom and knowledge of the past. So, so the, the guidelines, the guidelines are that because as, as individual human beings, we, we have different ways of explaining. We have different ways of doing it and passing down knowledge and wisdom and understanding through, you know, through various texts and through stories and through, well, through, you know, through various codes and laws and, his, and histories. So we need, we need both that individual attention to the world around us, plus, plus um, a discerning, a, a discerning holding us, holding us in between, but learning from other people as well. So that it's always got to be something that, uh, uh, you know, that we can learn from, you know, for wisdom of, for wisdom of others as well. So do you, do you think that there could ever be such a thing as moral progress? Well, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that there can be, there can be moral progress. When you can, when you consider that when we sort of dig up archaic humans, I think I might be getting the statistics wrong, but I think like, a third of the males died violent deaths, <laughs> battered to death by others. So look at that moral prog- moral progress. So I think that we can make moral progress, but we need to think about the ways in which we're doing that. So I think moral progress would come would come in in terms of the sort of humanizing attention, allowing that. In terms of artificial intelligence and moral progress, that's one of the reasons why. I've highlighted, I highlighted in the response about moral progress, attention and our embodiment is the ways in which a lot of the technology that we're using with, you know, bits of, bits of artificial intelligence or just computing in general, the way in which that is actually altering our attention to the world is kind of hacking our attention. So even the fact that the brightness of screens attracts your eye, maybe more than the world around us, but nonetheless, even though it's attracted, attracted your eye is actually giving you a degraded image compared to what you can see by just turning around you 
I mean, the image I can see on you in the screen, if I met you in real life, I would, I would see far more detail and I would not just get the visuals, I'd get more. But a lot of the technology is intentionally designed to hack our attention to particular things. So we all know that the social media accounts designed to keep you online. And unfortunately, they've discovered, I mean, there are... There are there are weaknesses in human psychology that we're more likely to get engaged by a lot of negative emotions, by outrage, by anger. Those sorts of things can keep us hooked, focus our attention more than more than other things. So, but given how I think how critically important our attention to other people is for you know moral knowledge or moral understanding, whatever you want to call it, I think we have to be really really concerned about the ways in which technology is is actually just hacking people's attention. So one of my particular bugbears is, but I, 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 I do drawing as well as, I, I do one day a week, I go and do drawing, I, I do take drawing classes, and we would, we'd do some stuff out, out of doors. But yesterday we were at a big shopping centre in London, and it's, you do drawings of people in cafes, people sitting there with their friends, they're just on their phone. And you could say, well, of course it's their choice to do it, but it's, in a sense it's almost not because of the attention the, the attention is being driven. You see, so, so people are, you know, people are paying so much attention to phones rather than to the world around them. I just think it's so. Uh, but I, I also have this, yeah. So in terms of, yeah, in terms of moral progress, I just think that, I think there's a, a possibility of moral progress, but we also actually also have to be really, really careful about what we think moral progress is actually, because people who call themselves progressive are often nothing like progressive. Maybe we shouldn't go into a big political argument about that, but the people who shout the loudest that they're the most progressive ones, it's not always the case. So you have to be really, really careful about claims of moral progress. And if I could just say one thing in relation to um, AI and AI ethics, when so when we're, you're looking at how we might tackle artificial intelligence and maybe build... A lot of people are concerned that maybe we should try to build ethics into the AI that we have. And of course, we need to build in things like um, safety and making certain it does what we want it to do and and be concerned about ethical and value questions at every step of its development and deployment. But we also have to be very careful of assuming that here in the 21st century, we've made such great moral progress that we now, now know what the right answer is. So that we now know what the what right moral answer is, and we can program it into machines. So that's that, that's a bit of a danger of, of of moral progress. I think we need to. I think I also think that we need to hang on to it as an ideal. Sometimes I think as a, as a hope that there is moral progress, but be really really careful about what it actually is, and be constantly checking, not just with yourself, but with other other people as well. Is this really better than it was before? Yeah, certainly not always. So so what are the codes of ethics in regards to artificial intelligence? Oh, well, there's, there's, there's actually now so many different codes of ethics and regulations for artificial intelligence. There are people actually keeping track of how many there are. They're proliferating. So um, the idea of developing codes of ethics for AI is, if you like, it's it's something that has been done before for lots of different technologies. So it's been, it's, Oh, oh, oh well, I mean, we can. Medicine is a technology, of course. So the development of codes of ethics around medical ethics, which really took off in the second half of the twentieth century, it had, it had pre-existed the Second World War, but a lot of it was kicked off by the appalling atrocities committed in the Second World War, the medical experiments and and so on. 
and has, has, has developed and lots of there are lots of ideas like patient consent and autonomy um for, for example we now it's generally accepted with differences about how you exactly understand and apply that and and likewise there have been um declarations against um you know against using biological weapons and so on um so that was that was the idea around artificial intelligence that maybe we needed to have codes of ethics and regulations to govern it to to, to curtail its power so lots of i mean lots of codes of ethics have been produced some wonderful question is what actually use they're going to have because it's okay making declarations but you have to be actually kind of embody it in how it's being and how it's being used but codes of ethics generally come down to looking at certain central questions but that you could see over and over and over again in different in different codes of ethics worldwide so concern that artificial intelligence should be used to benefit people um concern about the control of ai that maybe it's often built in something along the lines of humans should also always retain ultimate control concerns about decision making by ai so for example it's built in it's built into law now in the uh, in the european is it is it built into law now i i lose track about when the law's been passed or not it, it but there's the idea that if there's some important decision made around you using ai you should always have the recourse to human judgment so that you can always question it and 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 have human judgment so there has been there have been appalling um, appalling cases of of artificial intelligence being used to make decisions about social security for example getting it completely wrong so that for the right to human redress um usually built in questions about transparency and explainability of ai because there's a big issue but a lot of the algorithms a lot of the computing power that's used is so complex that it's really hard to know exactly why a decision is being made so there's a lot of work around that of course there's problems with that as well actually because sometimes the people using it generally don't really understand how it's how it's working and another problem is that they might be able to give an explanation that you could understand if you'd spent 17 years studying these things at MIT <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be translated into ways in which uh, in which ordinary people you know, ordinary people can can, can can understand and there's all, there's also a question that sometimes you don't, you don't, wouldn't necessarily want to put this out into the general public because it could be used by somebody who might be using it to ill effect so there are complexities 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 around that the usual the usual sorts of things you might get in any code but it shouldn't be biased against particular groups yeah is that enough there are there are more but that's, that just gives a general a, a general, a general, a general overview. Um, so I suppose, and, I suppose, sometimes the code of ethics makes things worse by the sound of it. Well, see, I mean, there's a, there's a, there are ways in which codes of ethics can, can, if you like, they can. There are certain ways in which they can actually not doing it, do it, do anything of any benefit, really. So what? So one of the, one of the things to note is that so many codes of ethics for this will start off by talking about how AI must benefit everybody. But benefit is such a vague concept, isn't it? I mean, who could possibly be against that? One of the reasons why you get agreement on things is because it's just so it's just so bland. It depends on what you mean by benefit. And you will sometimes see that the fact that AI should be used to benefit people is used to say, well, AI is beneficial, so we need to make certain that as many people as possible have it. So that you know, giving out laptops to people in different parts of the developing world, and it turns out that the laptops just have Facebook on them, 
so that people find out about the world through Facebook. And this is a, ben- a benefit. So that, that's, that's, that's one, of the issues, one of the issues about exactly what you mean by benefit. And especially as, as technology quickly changes our world and changes changing the ways in which we relate to each other, changing the ways in which we gain information about ourselves even. So the ways, you know, the ways in which we're using, so many people are using AI as tracking you know, to monitor their health, for instance. They've got like those, they monitor their steps and get biofeedback and so on. So of course that could be really beneficial, but then you have to think about the benefits of constantly monitoring yourself and the ongoing impacts around that. There are people, you know, there are lots of people who are actually looking really, really closely at those but those those kinds of questions. So then what actually counts as benefit, given the ways in which we're all living our lives in re- relation to technology, just comes come ends up being very, very complex. But another reason why um codes of ethics could be could be problematic is because people will proudly claim that they've got a code of ethics. So but oh so it's done as sort of corporate branding. So you will see if you look through tech companies, they now they mostly always say they've got an ethics board or they've got a code of ethics or they're doing it ethically. It's a form of marketing. It's been happening for quite a long time in relation to ecological things, a sort of greenwashing that, uh, you know, assuring this. Everything, you, you can hardly buy a single thing these days without it being said it's ecological. It's good for the environment in some obscure, scarcely explained manner. And a similar kind of, a similar, a similar kind of thing with, with this, I mean, of course, it's a good thing if these tech corporations are thinking about ethics, but we need to think about exactly what that, what exactly what that actually means. Um, and also, lastly, as many people have pointed out, most of the codes of ethics and regulations that have been produced so far come from certain parts of the world. So that one of the big concerns about AI is the way in which it's mostly being produced by certain groups of people with certain values so of all the high level people working in ai you could probably just all you know you could probably all you couldn't get them into my flat that's too small but you could you could cram them into a football stadium and so, and a lot of them will work in not just in, in america but in particular parts of america i mean not all of them of course but there's there's questions about how their own values and biases and uh, are, are creeping into ai but you could also also really say the same thing about ai ethics that it tends to be certain people who are shouting the loudest and getting heard in AI ethics. So what ends up in codes? We, I mean, we need we need to have we need to have more voices from around the world and make certain that there's as much you know, as 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 much participation in thinking about the ethical issues as as, as possible. So there's there's um there's in, there's there's been work by in different indigenous groups looking at, at ethical issues in AI, for example. Um, and also, it's 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 often been pointed out that some of the, some of the people who have been talking about issues with AI, who have been in a sense understand the tech and have been whistleblowing it, have often been women who have ended up um, ended up out of jobs. So um, Tim Nitkebru, I apologise if I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly, who was working at Google, who was who lost her job. So you'll you'll often find you'll often find that that that, that people who pay a lot of attention to these issues get less attention than they should have mm, yeah for sure it was, it was complex in terms of whether it, it think they could do harm i suppose if they but codes of ethics could do harm if they're focusing on the wrong kinds of things as i mentioned in the last time we spoke about the preamble to the european union's ai act 
was basically saying we need to have ethical issues looked at in AI because we need to enhance people's trust in AI so that they use the technology. So who's pushing it? Is it people primarily concerned with ethics or is it industry? So we see that a lot. We see that a lot. There's a lots of tie ups between ethics and industry. So, for example, in in Britain, we've just recently passed the online safety bill. Is if you look at the, a lot of the thinking and lobbying behind it, a lot of the lobbying for it came from firms working with the UK who stand to benefit from technology used to monitor online safety. So, so of course, that's not necessarily wrong. That's not necessarily ethically dodgy, but it's something we need to be aware of. There are so many different industry voices interested in this area. So what do you think the future holds for artificial intelligence and humans? Well, how long have you got? How long, how long are these interviews? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, sorry, you've only got about another 10 minutes, so <laughs> you well, have to keep it brief. <laughs> I mean, as I said before, the big problem is control. The big problem, you can branch it under control, understood in all sorts of in all sorts of different ways, in tiny, minute, little ways. You know, the ways in which your smartphone is controlling you because it's making you notice it when you're in the middle of doing something else. But 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 your smartphone is controlling you because you're talking to a person and you're you see something on your phone, so your attention is distracted. So you're you are being we are being controlled. We are being controlled in that way. So the big problem is how we as humans learn to live with it in ways that's beneficial for us. So if, and if we go back to how, the use of technology, it, 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 I mean, it generally always has dangers. So fire, I mean, human beings, we couldn't possibly have, we couldn't possibly have evolved in the way we have without the use of fire. But of course, you know, get, goes beyond saying fire could be incredibly dangerous. That's why it's useful. It's dangerous. That's how we managed to keep the saber-toothed tigers away, <laughs> away from our babies. Um, so, Likewise, we need to think about how we can use AI in ways that are actually going to enhance us. So we can think of AI as something we can use to extend or enhance our capacities as humans, but also in ways that can be used to replace our skills and capacities and to replace human beings. So we can use it to replace human beings in certain jobs, but we can use it to de-skill ourselves if we're not careful. So then the question we need to think about is, are there some things we've done that we don't ever really need to do? Um, what even counts as de-skilling? What what skill what what skill set do we need? And 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 again, it, going back to the questions about moral knowledge and moral progress, if it, we're thinking about the future for human beings in artificial intelligence, we need to think about how artificial intelligence might be moulding and shaping how we relate to each other, just as individual human beings, how we do what Martin Buber called the I-thou relationship. I'm, I'm relating to you where it's sort of like a world apart at the moment. I'm relating to you over, over, over the internet as a, as a human being. Um, it would be much closer if we were actually in the same room or if I was your neighbour or c- colleague. But how we relate, we can, use, we can use this technology to extend it. We couldn't have had the interview otherwise, but we need to think about what's the impact of having so many long-distance conversations at, what would be the impact if so much of our life is being lived virtually? How can we make certain that's really benef- beneficial? Um, what, what's the impact of having this infrastructure, which is controlling us in all sorts of ways where we don't really understand? 
even, I mean, even the things that we're constantly having to lie when we click on, I have read the terms and conditions. No, you haven't, <laughs> because it's wrong. So, so even, even those little tiny, little tiny things that we're now all told into habitual liars, um, and 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 the ways in which it's being premised as a sort of convenience and efficiency. So that's one of the things we really need to think about is what actually counts as convenience, what actually counts as efficiency, or when when do we need efficiency? So um, going back to an example, a really easy, useful example I think I used in the last interview was about use, using huge computer power to, to forecast the weather. We want to do it as quickly as possible. But to my knowledge, I don't think anybody has ever said that they want to develop sex robots so they can have sex as fast as possible. It's kind of different. Different. We have different values in different in, in different spheres. So that was a kind of a joke, but it's like to, to point out that why do we need to do things fast? Why do we why why do we need to use this? Why why do we need to have constant monitoring of our health, for example? Where is that going to be beneficial? When is it going to turn us all into constant patients? These are these are all the kinds of these are all the kinds of questions that we need to be addressing and asking. Sorry, but I should probably just pause for a minute to, in case you want to ask any more, because there, because there are so many, so so many questions. Because we need to ask questions about how this might be dividing us as human beings, the ways in which certain people are going to be really okay with the tech and have control over it, and other people are going to be more subject to it. Um, so one of the big questions is the future of work. You know, how is this going to affect the workplace? And one of the things that's always alarmed me is when people who work in really glamorous, high-tech, very well-paid jobs talk about using AI-related technologies in order to get rid of, of mundane work or work which involves drudgery. Now, I'm all for using robots to do landmine clearances and difficult difficult jobs like that. Just hooray for robots. Because who cares if a robot gets blown up? And there are all sorts of jobs which are very, very, very dangerous. But I'm sometimes alarmed when people talk about old oh, jobs being so mundane, it's not fit for human human to do. They involve jobs like working in cafes and shops, which I cannot see anything inherently dehumanising about working in a cafe. I just simply can't. And, and one of the reasons, one of the reasons why you might go out to a cafe to have a cup of coffee instead of having it at home is because you're in a social place and the interaction with the staff and I think especially for people who live isolated or lonely lives, but sort of a few words of kindness or chat or a smile from somebody in a in a supermarket or in a cafe is yeah, no, you're, you're definitely right. That's one thing that I wouldn't want to see replaced, and I, I think most people feel the same way about it. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. And I've been speaking with Dr. Paula Bottington about artificial intelligence well that's all we have time for today i've certainly enjoyed your company and do tune in next time